You're listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, everyone. Uh, great to be with you this morning. Great to be uh, having another opportunity. Uh, to preach. Uh, Robbie is in Nashville uh, for the convocation of the CEEC with whom he is ordained. And uh, also, so prayers for him as he travels and also prayers for the rest of the Waddells who are all uh, battling some kind of illness. There's something going around. Uh, my daughter had it earlier this week and it's, it's yuck. So uh, wash your hands, y'all. Uh, <laughs> Um, today is the first Sunday in Lent, and we're starting a new series. Uh, the new series is called How to Be Human. Um, and we're going to be focusing each week in Lent on how, in Scripture, Jesus uh, is, uh, sh- is leading us, is, is uh, showing us how to be a better kind of human. You know, there's often, I think, sometimes we, we, we kind of... Um, we kind of frame our understanding of both who Jesus is and who we are as, uh, you know, divinity good, humanity bad. And so we kind, of have, we kind of embrace that dichotomy. And so those things that are human about us, we imagine that Jesus is delivering us from. Uh, but I think that if we are following Jesus, we are following Jesus into our humanity, not just into his divinity. We're following Jesus into a better way of being human, of humanity as it is intended to be. And we are leaving behind all those things that beset us in our humanity, but we're not abandoning our humanity, right? The good news is the good news of the resurrection, and the good news of the resurrection is the good news of the body, of our bodies, and so uh, we're going to be looking at that week to week, what it means to be a better human and how Jesus leads us that way. In, John, uh, in John's gospel, uh, Thomas says, this is just after Jesus um, has resurrected Lazarus, and Jesus has made his intention known that he's going to Jerusalem. And so Thomas says to the rest of the disciples, let us follow Jesus so that we may die with him. Uh, because the disciples are aware, as I'm sure Jesus was, that to go to Jerusalem uh, was uh, kind of a, a, a death sentence, right? It was not the safe place to be for Jesus. But that statement by Thomas, I think, really encapsulates what the Lenten journey is for us. It is us saying, let us follow Jesus that we may die with him. That is what Lent is. And Lent is this season. Lent is just an old English word that means spring. Uh, and it's the season that comes in the springtime. And uh, Lent, uh, like the whole calendar, is a, is a tool for us. It's a gift for us. We get to use it um, like we get to use so many of the things that we do here. Um, the worship and the preaching and the reading of scripture. All of this is to shape our awareness. And the calendar does that for us too. It lets us engage even time. Even the pace and the rhythms with which we move through the year around the story of Jesus. And so the first Sunday in Lent always uh, kind of uh, commemorates and and, um, remembers the time that Jesus spent in the wilderness after his baptism. But I want to start first uh, with the story of Genesis here because in a lot of ways the story of the baptism and the temptation in the wilderness is sort of a... uh, uh, 
it's framed as a retelling or, or kind of almost a, um, an untelling of both the story of Noah and the story of creation. So here's the sermon in a sentence. I'm going to kind of spoil the end here. I like to do this. I like to let you know what I'm saying ahead of time because A, it helps me keep on track because I'm prone to kind of ramble and meander. And so you know, as I'm saying things, you can kind of go, wait, what's he talking about again? Oh, yeah, it's this. So here's the sermon in a sentence, all right? Those of you who take notes, this is a great note to take. Jesus shows us how to be human by guiding us through our wilderness of temptation, showing us the difference between what is right and what merely seems right. I'll say that again. Jesus shows us how to be a better human by guiding us through our wilderness of temptation, showing us the difference between what is right and what merely seems right. So we know this flood story of Noah, right? This, this uh, our lectionary passage for today is, um, is this covenant part after the flood. But we know the flood story, right? Uh, human violence has reached a tipping point, and, and it's seemingly the trajectory of human history is, has reached an untenable point, right? Violence has abounded, and God says, oh boy, this is bad. I got to really kind of wipe the slate clean. And so he takes this one family uh, you know, of righteous people, Noah and, and, his, and his sons <clears throat> and their wives, and uh, puts them on the ark, and uh, it rains a lot, uh, and uh, they're out there for 40 days and 40 nights, and we know the story of Noah kind of sending out birds, right? He sends out a dove, and it comes back, and then there's, he sends it out again, and then eventually it doesn't come back, which is a sign that it's found somewhere to land, right? We don't see that happening, but we know that's the presumption there. The dove flew away and didn't come back, or, or first it came back with an olive branch, and then the last time it didn't come back at all. And so this, this is a sign that, okay, there's land out there. And so this scene uh, in this Genesis passage um, shows us uh, God kind of setting, making a covenant with Noah and with all the peoples of the earth, and not just all the peoples of the earth, all the beasts of the earth too, which we kind of skip over that point. It's not just humanity. It's all of creation. God makes this covenant. He says, I'm hanging my bow in the heavens, right? And we, we understand the rainbow to be that sign, but that also means his bow, right? Like his bow of, of violence. God's hanging it up. God's, God's kind of closing the book on divine violence. He's saying, what I'm going to do in the earth and with my people, it's, it's not going to be through this. And so he hangs his bow up. And so I find it interesting Growing up, we loved uh, stories like this. Like, somewhere along the line, we decided this was a children's story, which, (laughs) yeesh, like, this is not a children's story. These are the stories I kind of avoid telling my kids because the questions are tough and the answers are tougher. Uh, But we tell these stories, uh, and we always... Um, and it's not just with Noah, it's with a lot of these Bible stories. We love to tell about, about four-fifths of the story, right? We, we love the, the part that seems to kind of say what we want it to say. And then we always seem to kind of leave off the part that we don't know what to do with. And so we tell this Noah story, and we love to end with this covenant part. And like, yay, the end. But that's not the end of Noah's story. The very next phrase after this section, uh, well, first it, it kind of um, it lists the, the children of, of, uh, of Noah uh, right after this part where God makes this covenant. 
And then it says a very interesting phrase. It says, and Noah was a man of the soil. And Noah was a man of the soil. And he planted a vineyard. Now that might kind of hit our ears as kind of uh, sort of an innocuous fact, right? Noah planted a vineyard. But that specific phrase, a man of the soil, is really, really unique in Scripture. It only happens twice in Genesis. And does anyone remember the first time we hear it? It's before this. Does anyone want to take a, take a stab? Uh, I heard it. Say it again. Cain. Yeah. Cain was a man of the soil. And so we're meant to understand here, right, that, that what, has, what has beset Cain has followed down the line to Noah, right? That that, that, that sin, that, that creature that's been, that God says is, is crouching at Cain's door, has snuck its way onto the ark and made it through the flood and is still there. And Noah, like Cain before him, has not mastered it. And then we have this story of kind of Noah having this um, kind of uh, uh, heavily coded and uh, seemingly very uh, bizarre kind of moral failure. Noah's story, that last fifth of Noah's story, we leave it off. We do this with a lot of Bible stories, right? I remember growing up in youth group, uh, we used to love the story of Elijah confronting confronting the prophets on Mount Carmel. And, and, you know, and there's fire and he kills everyone. And like in youth group, we loved that stuff because it was like the violence we could like, you know, we weren't allowed to see R-rated movies, but we could talk about this and like, yeah, you know, make a stand, make a stand for God, right? Change the world for God. This was all very much kind of in the vein of the youth group that, you know, did anyone else grow up? Like, does that, does that sound familiar? Okay. Yeah. We love that story, except that we tell four fifths of it because what happens right after that is that it doesn't work. This big spectacle that Elijah has on the mountain where he's confronting the prophets and God answers by fire and he says, decide this day whom you will serve. It doesn't work. It changes zero minds and Elijah despairs for his life. He runs for his life. He hides. We love telling these stories, but we love leaving off the failures. And the failures are important. And it's all throughout Scripture. This story is one of the ways that I know that the Scriptures are a faithful witness of our story with God. Is because I think that if we made it up, we would have made ourselves look a little better, right? Like if we were making this stuff up, like we'd just be like, and then we got it right every time, yay! Like no, the fact that the fact that there's this pattern, this design pattern in Scripture where it's it's success and then failure, and the successes are tempered. They're they're kind of. Um, they're, they're contrasted with the failures. And so, uh, oh, and, and here, this is kind of an aside. The, the, that phrase, man of the soil, actually happens a third time in Scripture. And it's to describe King Uzziah, who, uh, you want to talk about success and failure, he's a great story because he has all of this... Um, kind of practical success as, as a king, right? He's rebuilding walls and towers, and he's, you know, kind of um, really uh, economic and military, and by every measure that you would w- kind of want a national leader, Uzziah hits the mark, man. He's great. But then he has this moral failing at the end of his story. He, he goes into the temple, and he sacrifices, and the priests are like, uh, this is not okay. This is, this is what we do. This isn't for you to do. They get 80 priests together and they confront him and he starts raging at them because who are you to tell me what to do? I'm the king, right? 
and I look at all the success I have. Look at, look at, look, I'm doing everything right. And then I get to do this. And then as he's raging with the priests, he breaks out in leprosy. And they rush him out of there. And he spends the rest of his days in exile, alone. Noah winds up alone in a tent. Elijah ends up alone in a cave. Uzziah ends up alone in exile because of his leprosy. We can't just tell four-fifths of these stories. We have to look at the whole thing. And it's not to just harp on these characters from Scripture. These are important stories because they mirror us. This is, this is us. This is our legacy. This is what we do, right? We, we get some things right, and we have some success. But ultimately, we can't save ourselves. Ultimately, we can't um, get everything right, right? We, we fail, and the failures are just as much teachers both in Scripture and in our own lives, failure is as important a teacher as success, possibly more so. So let's move on to Mark, because Mark's story of the baptism of Jesus is a retelling, much, much the way that Noah's story of the flood is a retelling of the creation narrative, or kind of an untelling of the creation narrative, Right? In the creation story, God holds back the waters. And, in, wa- and in, in, in Scripture, these waters are not just waters like like we would maybe kind of understand them. They're just kind of there. They're a feature of the world. In the ancient world, waters represented chaos. They were mysterious. They were the uncreated energies of the cosmos, right? And so in the flood story, God ceases to hold back the waters and uncreation happens. It's not just a kind of a cleansing. It's an undoing of creation. And so we're meant to kind of understand that in the story of Noah, and much the way that Noah is a retelling of the creation story, Jesus' baptism is a retelling of both of those stories. So uh, Jesus is baptized, and he comes up out of the water, and a dove comes and lands on him. The spirit as a dove comes and he lands on him. And much the way that kind of in Noah, we see the dove leave at the end, and it doesn't come back, but we're meant to understand that it's landed on the new creation. It's landed on the terra firma of the new creation. Here we see that actually happening. Jesus comes up out of the water, and the dove lands on him. And so we're meant to understand that Jesus is the, is the solid ground. Jesus is the, is the terra nova of the new creation. And Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, mirroring the 40 days and 40 nights of Noah's story. And it says that Jesus is with the wild beasts, just like Noah is with the wild beasts. And just like Noah, Jesus faces temptation. And here, it's not just where the story is similar, it's where the stories diverge that are important here. Because Jesus is not just like Noah, he's a better Noah. He's not just like our human humanity, he's a better humanity. And so we also know this temptation story. Let's take a look at that. And here I'm going to go to Matthew's Gospel because uh, it actually details this temptation narrative that we know It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. Now, this is a story that might kind of suffer from its own familiarity, like from our own familiarity with it. We know this story well. And so I think we can kind of um, envision this in a 
kind of two-dimensional cartoonish version, right? Like Jesus is in the wilderness and the devil comes along. And I don't know what you're picturing, but it might be like, I don't know, Voldemort, like, <laughs> like a cloaked figure. Or maybe it's like that classic, like a red suit and a widow's peak and a pitchfork. And, you know, maybe he's, maybe he's in a bind and he's way behind and he's looking to make a deal, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Pleased to meet you. Hope you guess my name. No, it's not, it's not that situation. It's not, it's not like that. And I'm confident it's not like that because that's not how we're tempted, right? Like, that would be kind of easy. If the devil appeared to us like that and said, hey, won't you do this? We'd be like, well, that's not a bad idea. Oh, wait a minute. I'm, you're the devil. Nice try, the devil. Right? Like, we'd be like, no, I, I, I see. Yeah, no, no, we're not doing that. But that's not how we're tempted. We're not tempted with what is obviously evil. We're not tempted what, with what is obviously satanic. And I believe Jesus wasn't tempted that way either. I think Jesus was tempted the way that we're tempted. And it's when Satan comes to us under the guise of our own good ideas. So Jesus, we know, has just been baptized and scripture tells us that we know he's about to start his ministry. And we know he's out in the wilderness and he's praying and he's fasting. He's meditating. He's contemplating. He's thinking about how he's going to do this, right? Like, okay, I'm, a, I'm about to start this, this ministry. How am I going to do it? And what seems like good ideas come to him. And that's an important thing to notice here, that the, the temptations Jesus faces are not to do what is obviously evil. They're to do what seems good. Satan says, hey, pretty hungry, huh? Why don't you turn these stones into bread? So the Judean wilderness uh, is very rocky. It's kind of like, um, sort of like high desert, right? Like, um, like if you've been to parts of Arizona, there's rocks everywhere. And so to be tempted to turn these rocks into bread is not merely a temptation to feed Jesus' self. To turn these rocks into bread would be to make a lot of bread because there's a lot of rocks. And because it's Jesus that's being tempted, we know that he's not just being tempted by his own hunger. He's being tempted by his own desire to feed people. He's being tested in his empathy, Right? Jesus isn't just thinking about, boy, I'm hungry. Jesus, in his hunger, is thinking about all of the hungry. And so the temptation here is a simple one. Hey, just, won't you just feed everyone? You're planning on starting this ministry. Won't you make it about meeting the needs of the people? That's good. Just feed everyone. And just do it miraculously. Turn all these stones into bread. You could feed so many people. And Jesus responds by saying, Man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so, if Jesus' response is, isn't a non sequitur, if it actually follows what the temptation is, then what he's being tempted to be is to make his ministry about just feeding people, just meeting the needs, just mercy ministry, we might call it. Except that he, know, he knows he needs to do more than that. And so Satan says, hey, that's a, that's a great scripture. I, I love scripture. How about this? How about, you, how about you go 
to the temple, and he takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple, and he says, hey, if you're the son of God, throw, it, throw yourself down, because, hey, that Bible, that scripture that you love so much says, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus says to him, again, it's written, don't put the Lord your God to the test. What's, being, what's Jesus being tempted to do here? Again, nothing that's obviously evil. Jesus is being tempted to make a spectacle, make such an obvious and overt spectacle that people have no choice but to be convinced. The temptation here is convince everyone. Just feed everyone. Just convince everyone. Leave no room for doubt. But here's the thing. If you leave no room for doubt, you leave no room for faith. We've said this here before. It's, it's a Paul Tillich idea. He says the opposite of faith isn't doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. If you have no need, if there's no risk of doubt then there's no need for faith. You don't need faith for something that you're certain of that has been ironclad proven. You said, hey, there's Jesus up there. Whoa, he's fine. No room for, no room for faith, no room for doubt. Frederick, uh, Frederick Beekner uh, said, when you leave room for doubt, you leave room for me. Jesus needs to leave room for us. Jesus wants to leave room for us. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said, away with you, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him and suddenly angels came and waited on him. Jesus is being tempted to Rule over the earth. But wait, isn't that kind of what Jesus is here to do? Isn't that what Jesus is supposed to be? What Jesus is being tempted with here is the, is the temptation to become a conqueror, to become a leader in the fashion of every conqueror and leader before. The world has been conquered many, many times over. Jesus is being tempted to be Jesus the Great, right? That is what it means to conquer the world with a knee bent to Satan, is to conquer the world the way that it's always been conquered, through force and through coercion. And Jesus is saying, no, this is, this is different. I'm doing something else. This is a different kind of kingdom, and I'm a different kind of king. Again, Jesus is being tempted not with what is obviously overtly evil, but would, with a certain depth of understanding, seem to be right. And that is how we are tempted. And that is what the wilderness can reveal to us if we follow Jesus there. If we follow Jesus into the wilderness and have him as our guide, we can benefit from his wisdom to determine to discern between what is right and what merely seems right. I believe that the sin that most effectively besets us are not those instances where we know what's wrong and do it anyway. Like, I think impulse control is fine. I think it's important, right? We should avoid doing what we know is wrong. But I think that that's not, 
that's not the heart of it. That's, not, that's certainly not the depth of it. I think the sin that most imperils the human soul are those things that we have convinced ourselves are right, are good, are even holy. It's our own good ideas. It's those answers we've come up with to problems that are too complex and uncomfortable to really face. And so we want to make things simple. We want to make things black and white. And we think that if we can find a scripture that seems to say what we want it to say, then we can kind of pocket that and we can hit each other over the head with it whenever we want to make a point. But it's not that simple. God knows life's not that simple. And I think it should give us all pause that Satan comes to Jesus with scripture. What does that mean? What could that mean apart from the fact that there is a way of approaching Scripture? There is a reading of Scripture that is, at its heart, satanic? That should give us all pause. And so we shouldn't always just jump to, well, I've got a verse for it. I've got, I've got this verse that seems to say this. Jesus has to be our guide through Scripture the way that Jesus has to be our guide through the wilderness. And so facing temptation isn't just being able to make a list of those things that are right and the list of those things that are wrong. It's being able to decipher right from right-ish. And here's the thing. All of the things that Jesus gets tempted to do are things that Jesus does a version of anyway. Jesus does miraculously feed people. Except that he doesn't do it by just hocus-pocus turning some stones into bread. He does it by using what we bring to him. You see, Jesus doesn't need to just serve us. He gets us to serve each other. Jesus takes what we bring. He gets 5,000 people to feed each other. I think one of the things that we need to understand about who Jesus is is that Jesus is the embodiment of the idea that God does not want to be God without us. That's who Jesus embodies to us. That's, that's, what, that's one of the, at least one of the things that Jesus represents to us, is that God would rather not be God than God without us. And so he doesn't just feed us, he gets us to feed each other. And he teaches us that when we bring what we have with generosity and with gratitude, then what we have becomes enough. Jesus does signs, right? The second temptation. Just convince everyone. Well, Jesus does make signs. Except that Jesus does signs that are healing. He always heals somebody. He always delivers somebody. And here again, it's not just Jesus being Jesus alone. It's not Jesus being God alone and making a spectacle of himself. Jesus is making signs that serve. He's serving people. He's delivering people. He's healing people. He's resurrecting people. Signs above spectacles. And then the third temptation to just conquer everyone. The temptation to conquer the world in obedience to Satan is the way that the world has always been conquered, which is by the sword and by violence and coercion. And again, I believe that Jesus was tempted the way that you and I are tempted, in our hearts and in our minds and by what would seem wise according to our own understanding. The difference in Jesus' story, and the, between Jesus' story and Noah's story, 
or Cain's story or Uzziah's story or our story is not in the way that he was tempted, but in who was being tempted. Jesus shows us a better way to be human. Not the faster way, not the more effective way, not the way that guarantees our own interests and our own safety, but the better way. And so, as I'm wrapping up here, we're at the front of 40 days of Lent. These are 40 days where we are invited to be in the wilderness with Jesus. And the wilderness can, if you let it, take from you. It can scour you. It can buffet and disturb you. But an interesting feature of, of, um, not in Matthew's, but in Luke's telling of the wilderness temptation. Jesus, it said, uh, was filled with the Spirit and entered the wilderness. At the end of Luke, it says, Jesus returned full of the power of the Spirit. Something happens in the wilderness. Something gets activated. It's addition by subtraction, right? We're giving something up. Something's being taken from us. But we gain much more than we lose. And what's being taken from us is only that which we didn't realize we didn't need, that we didn't realize was holding us back. And what we receive is what we didn't realize we needed all along. Maybe you're in the wilderness today. Maybe you're choosing it by, by way of fast. Maybe you're engaging Lent by giving something up. Maybe you're in the wilderness not by choice. One of the versions, I think it's, um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's Mark's version, says that Jesus was driven into the wilderness by the Spirit. It's the same language that we get when Jesus casts out demons. He was compelled, he was pushed into the wilderness. That might be you today. Maybe you're going through some personal loss. Maybe your future is uncertain. Maybe there's confusion. But if you follow Jesus through it, if you let Jesus be your guide through the wilderness, you can, you will come out the other end of it empowered, enlivened. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes. And if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.